Hello and welcome to the My Picture House podcast. My name is Jamie Lynch. Today I'm going to read you an essay rather than talk specifically about a film. Why am I going to do that, you ask? Well, this essay is from a book called I Was Interrupted, Nicholas Ray on Making Movies. This is Nicholas Ray's autobiography, edited and introduced by his wife, Susan Ray. Nicholas Ray was an American filmmaker. He was born in 1911. He died in 1979. He was among the most gifted filmmakers to work in post-war Hollywood cinema. His work was championed by French critics in Cahiers de Cinéma. He was um, a big favourite of Jean-Luc Godard and people like that. Other European uh, New Wave filmmakers as well, not just French, but um, German as well. And he made he made films mostly within the Hollywood system, which is interesting in itself because they have a very independent feel and they appealed very much to people who would become great independent filmmakers or very well-known independent filmmakers. He made Rebel Without a Cause, he made Johnny Guitar, On Dangerous Ground, 55 Days in Peking, In a Lonely Place. And um, we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about at least one of those films uh, later on in the series uh, individually because at least one of those films is, 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 is going to make it onto my list of, of, of the films that have been most important to me. But this book is his attempt, his second attempt and his first published attempt at an autobiography. And in it there's an essay and in that essay there's... A, one inside one idea that's become extremely important to me in my life in general as well as just thinking about films it's an essay called in a peapod i i will say before i read this i'm going to read the whole essay the reason i'm reading the essay on the podcast is because as far as i can tell the book is out of print it was published by um i think cambridge cambridge university press i'm just going to check yeah, you, no, sorry, University of California Press. It was it was um, it was published by University of California Press, Berkeley and Los Angeles, California, in 1993. The copyright is with Susan Ray. And as far as I can tell, this book is out of print at the moment. Um, just looking it up online, it's it's pretty much impossible to find a new copy. So for that reason, um, I think it's okay to, to to read out this one essay and just to share this um, share these thoughts and thoughts that have been very important to me and informed my thinking about a lot of things since I first read read this essay. Um, also, I would advise you if you can to go out and, and get the book and read the book. It's very interesting if you're interested in film, interested in um, in the process of making films, if you're interested in acting, theatre making, it's a fascinating book to read. Um, but it's it's it you can get secondhand copies, but they're quite expensive because it's not I don't think actively in print. So here is the essay. As I said, it's called In a Peapod, and it's uh, written by Nicholas Ray, and it's from the book I Was Interrupted by Nicholas Ray.
in a pea pod. In the free association, self-ridicule and ego trip of my first attempt at an autobiography, I didn't mention filmmaking at all. Although it has been and is, with perhaps one or two rare exceptions, the whole mainstream of my life. That for which I have over and over again sacrificed and tried to regiment personal life. Perhaps filmmaking for me is more personal than any of the personal things. I do not believe in the auteur theory, as it has been adapted by critics and turned into a gimmick for them to write about. And I do feel the need to question whether we filmmakers are auteurs in the artsy sense of the word, making the embroidery more important than the theme. Still, there is no doubt in my mind, as much as I believe in a fundamental humanity towards a, humility towards a script or idea that someone else has proposed, that even the best written script is a blueprint for the director, and that the director of a film is the true author of the film, who surveys all the contradictions. And so I think I'm a creator as opposed to an interpreter. As to my style or signature, I don't know my own style, and I'd rather talk about the signature of a Minnelli or a Zinnemann, a Ford, a Brunel, a Kazan, a Rossellini, a Luc Godard. A signature is as important on film, I guess, as it is on a painting or a short story, a poem, a novel, or any other work of art. I think that whether it's a good film or a bad film, every film is in one way a key to the director, if he has any signature at all. Otherwise, he's a craftsman and no more. If a director has a signature, it must be because the combination of his personality, neuroses, insight, crudeness or sophistication, and whatever else he knows of himself is very meaningful to him, but not self-consciously. We survive by what we expose of ourselves. I think I have a signature, but I can think that, uh, that only because I know how much of me is in my films, how autobi autobiographical are moments I've never experienced in reality, but which have the authority of conviction because they are autobiographical. Perhaps it is sometimes only my own neuroses and my own dislocation that attract attention and which are misinterpreted as interesting. But if that is so, it is also because I feel free enough to expose them. Whether they are the truth for other people, I will find out only when the film is accepted or not by those who see it. I've heard espousers of auteur theory refer to me as, quote, the poet of aloneness, unquote. I can't discuss the need for people to connect without connecting the void, space and time with the need for people to connect. The need for people to connect comes out of aloneness, the aloneness that different spatial alignments or counter themes create or set the stage for or help to dramatize. But it's the way we see them. A different person will see those spatial alignments in an entirely different way from a different perspective and they still will be the same. A natural energy provided or man-made shiftings of matter in a shifting space, keeping their same relative positions of one mass to another, seem permanent to the temporary viewer, but are always changing. So how to be an actor in the drama of the world Nicholas Ray supposedly created? 
but about which he knows not the boundaries, customs, manners, nor morals, nor even the colour of the skies and the oceans that go up to make a world. I'm not just being cute and reflective when I quote my mother and say, that's not for me to talk about, nor is it for me to conceive. I have no vision of the perfectly ordered world. I don't have the presumption of a social builder or a social critic. I can sometimes say that I have reflected to the best of my ability a part of the life and times in which I have lived from my own prejudiced and or at times distorted and kept in distortion point of view. But as an actor, and not always the principal actor in this little world, I cannot very well be the interpreter of my own interpretation. And yet, intellectually, I do respect and I do have feeling for my intentions, and more particularly for either my success or failure at communication. I respect the failure equally with the success, because success always surprises me, and failure I take for granted. Sometimes it surprises me when things fail, though I'm always fairly attuned to the Sphinx who said, don't expect too much. Generally I learn more from my failures than from my successes. Words are terribly deceptive. It's a pity we have to use them as a main vehicle of communication. We let words go by believing their meaning is inferred, while it's always open to our interpretation, misinterpretation or abuse, sometimes unintended, sometimes not. It's always when I realise that I'm dangerously close to something meaningful to me that I resort to the attack or flip praise or an attempted humour, sarcasm, satire. I do this in order to protect the privy world I'm trying to approach and expose, hoping to reach a deeper layer of interest in the so-called personal aesthetic. The personal aesthetic must include the artist's economic and sexual involvements and how those relate to what he does every day, and I suppose that's why it's so touchy. So what am I trying to say? The artist, manager, dictator, planner, logistician, strategist, politician, con artist, director under economic pressure as he always is when making a film, have to have one little pea pod filled with molecules of association to all the senses. That pea pod is the repository of all his prejudices, character defects, angers, promises, hopes, conceits, vanities, loves, regrets, sentiments, as well as an automatic sensor. Everything resides in the same little peapod which wanders around from bloodstream to air pockets to joints of bones. Since all these elements must be employed in his work, why does the artist feel he must protect them? And how can he know how to use them without tapping into what is for him perhaps the most precious element of all, the imagination. I'm not ashamed of my imagination and I regularly expose it, but how the imagination works in, in connecting all the other factors required for creative work is for me a very sensitive area. I'd like to explore this theme a bit as it may reveal something of the creative process and how it works in the daily economic and social life of the artist. I recall a scene in a car at the shore of a lake at the time I was going to school at the University of Chicago. The head of the drama department had invited me to a dinner party for a prominent actress. 
This bewildered me. Certainly I was not so brilliant as a young actor in college as to warrant that kind of attention. After dinner, the white-haired professor and I got into his automobile and drove back towards the campus. Lake Michigan was savage black water. For some reason unknown to me, he drove us to its edge and parked. I would have done that too, with Ruth, Ruth or Henny or Holly or Francis, but not with my professor. Instinctually, I knew I had to say something. And what I said came out of what was supplied me from the environment, the air and stuff around me. The water helped me stretch my imagination. I began describing the scene that I saw. A horde of Indians in canoes coming out of the black of the night and riding the waves of the lake. By God, I was fabricating this because I knew the approach of a man who liked other men was about to happen. To impress him was my action. But I couldn't catch up to the to the change but I couldn't catch catch him up to change his action. He caressed me. I wanted to please him. God knows I wanted to say thank you. Somehow I wanted to say thank you. I said thank you. He unbuttoned my trousers. I wanted to come if he wanted me to come. I stroked his grey white hair. I couldn't come. We drove back to campus. That filling of the void by the imagination coming to the rescue is an experience that perhaps very many, many of us have shared. The imagination is a pretty precious source of protection. That specific situation also brought to light an attitude in myself not consistent with the social denigration of homosexuals in those days. Later that attitude became very helpful to me in understanding and directing some of the actors with whom I've worked. I believe that I have been or would be successful in exposing the feminine in the roughest male symbol the public could accept. I also suspect the warmth or tenderness or colour range of a person who publicly deports himself in either a too strict a feminine or too strict a masculine role. For example, I must suspect the sentiment in the suicidal life Hemingway lived and the ambivalence that could create the number of young writers who called him Papa. Another situation, somebody who never got to know his father very well finds himself in need of stronger, older male direction. He begins to equate that male direction with male companionship because he knows the need must be satisfied in some way. But he finds that male companionship, unless on a Ward Bond, John Wayne level, is suspect. So what does he do? He builds another, res he builds another reserve of emotion, another source of energy, if he is sensitive at all, which he adds to the pea pod. Why does the artist protect the pea pod of molecules? He protects it to avoid the judgment of the world around him, obviously. But the pea pod is also instinctually protected by an inner knowledge that the emotions and associations contained within us are the source of the artist's energy and creative spark, his ability to observe and interpret, and possibly also his most beautiful and grossest mistakes. I submit that this is a major chord in whatever statement I make of aloneness. It is the business of a director to expose himself in whatever ways are necessary in order to communicate, either directly or through the performances of other artists. But it's difficult for someone as old as I am, who has been conditioned not to reveal himself. 
What happens to the Peapod as it relates to the director and his films? The way the imagination works for me, and I can't assume I'm unique, is that it gives me the ability to lie about myself. I've always found this very important. For example, in my relationship with actors who unfortunately are busy creating their images and who are timid, afraid. I will tell an actor about a situation in which I was involved, in which I was never really involved. But at that moment, my imagination is providing me with the situation as if I had been there. That allows the actor to become comfortable enough to think and to, and to permit associations, memories and daydreams to flow into him so he can have his own moments of decision. As director, I somehow want to be of enough help to each actor individually that he will come to believe each idea, action, piece of business, use of a prop is his own and only his. I cannot recommend this method of work for others because I know the attrition. I know the connotations and involvement, the wearing and tearing involvement that it demands. I do it this way, I have to do it this way because I'm not very glib and I'm always a bit suspect of the rules of the game. I don't believe in the rules of the game. I just don't believe there isn't any exception every time, somewheres. If the rules were right, I think people would generally embrace them and expand and add brightness and colour and desirability to the rules. Instead, rules are suffered, rules are obeyed instead of enjoyed, and they represent fences and boundary bar barriers. I don't think they can be very good. I don't think they can generate progress in a man. I've never said that before, and I've never tried to define this molecule of the peapod, but it's a part of what I, I'm about as a director. I've always run at the fire bell. Here we have another wellspring of creative energy. It's a very private area. One's will to find out about forms of destruction, self-destruction, genocide, the drama of the disaster. The projection of oneself into either the casket or flaming martyrdom. All contain the origin of symbols with which we've become very familiar. My friend Les Farber, who wrote The Ways of the Will, said that the moment the poet, philosopher, psychologist, psychiatrist, writer or movie director admits that man can destroy himself, then, whether he likes it or not, he is involved with the metaphysical. Adventures into the metaphysical and mysticism are components of another molecule in the peapod. Perhaps my own connections with the metaphysical are too precious or too unformed to permit their being approached by anybody asking a question that could touch and tingle or sever the nerve of communication. But the director must expose, and unashamedly, whether he truthfully whatever he truthfully feels about those things, even if what he feels is abhorrence. The other night, watching the first two reels of On the Waterfront on TV, I was again struck by Kazan's translation of To Be or Not To Be. That's what the film is about. It's not about the waterfront, it's about to be or not to be, and that lies in the hands of man himself. There was a period when I examined why I liked certain colour combinations. Why, for example, I believed that blue and green should never be together. I felt they clashed. Even though nature filled everything around me with blue and green, and it took me years before I could buy any painting that had brown and red on the same canvas. Finally, it was a remarkable day to me, 
I bought two paintings by a French artist just because they had brown and red together. I don't know why, and I don't think it's worth exploring, because there's really no answer, except we are all products of our neuroses. Our personalities, our characters, and our various degrees of education, and its opposite, its damn near opposite, knowledge, are all products of our neuroses. Some things I just can't explain. Some things on colour, composition, and either my bad taste or my good taste. Hearing each influential, sorry, hearing enough influential people repeat that I had a signature of my own, I became unhealthily self-conscious for a while, and not really investigative. But it never occurred to me that because my mother did not drop me on my head while listening to her first jukebox, I developed a healthy respect for all expressions in music. Then there were the very matter-of-fact answers. I did it because I knew it was the only thing I could do, or I did it because I had to save money somewhere so I could add it to the most important scene, or I was lucky in a decision forced on me by the weather to take an exterior inside and the interior turned out to be much better than what I could have expected from the exterior. Or a producer said, we have to save money, we have to cut out some sets. So I shot shot an exterior, and the exterior turned out fine. There's no self-aggrandizement to be had by making a big song and dance about how brilliant I've been. It's so much more often just a matter of given situations, and the director's days are filled with these situations. To face them, I've needed everything within me to be working so that they do turn out well. But at the time, I didn't know uh, that they would. At the, t- at the time, I'm not investigating myself. I'm either responding or I'm not responding. I'm in tune or I'm not in tune. My instrument is working or it's clogged. Sometimes there are accidents that are discoveries of myself or illuminations of an intention of the subconscious that get on film without my realizing it. If, after wrestling with all the details and influences and pressures and logistics and everything else at work, upon me and within me as a director every hour of the day, I discover that little surprise and know either instinctively or professionally that I've found the truth of a scene. That's the kind of accident I mean. It's a revelation. It's kind of a wonderful magic moment when I see it's there. Film is so much of an experience. So that's the essay in a peapod uh, by Nicholas Ray from Iris Interrupted. And as I said, if you can uh, find an affordable copy of the book, I would um, advise you to go out and read it. It's very interesting. Um, somebody who worked within the Hollywood system and outside the Hollywood system and who was respected um, in both areas and somebody who made just some really, really wonderful films and was extremely thoughtful and self-reflective about them. On another note, I think I learned the word uh, attrition from from that book. It's mentioned by Susan Ray uh, in the in the introduction, and he mentions it again there. I'd forgotten that he mentioned that he uses the word attrition in um, in that essay. And when it came time to make my student film, my, my graduation film at Dunleary College of Art and Design, uh, I chose to call the film Attrition, and I think it, that was very much down to um, that was very much down to 
learning that word and starting to think about that word in the context of filmmaking and life from 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 that book from I was interrupted uh, we'll talk more about maybe I think uh, for a little bit of fun we'll talk more about the that that film um, and it's uh, it's successes and failures, shall we say, uh, maybe in a different podcast just for fun sometime. Uh, but thank you for listening today. Uh, my name has been Jamie Lynch. It still is Jamie Lynch. Um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you would like to contact me, you can at picturehousepod at gmail.com and I'm on Twitter at picturehousepod. I really would love to hear from you. Um, it would be great if you could give me a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever format you you use or a platform you use to listen to your podcasts and I really would like to hear from people about um, the films that have been most important to them either growing up or later in life and why the stories that that the stories that surround that um, what it is in the peapod of certain films that has connected to the peapod your peapod um, that doesn't sound exactly as I meant it, um, and has sparked something really important for you. Um, so once again, thank you for listening. Bye. If you enjoyed that episode of the podcast and you'd like to um, express your appreciation uh, in a more concrete way, you can go over to the Ko-Fi website, ko-fi.com forward slash mypicturehouse and leave me um, a one-off donation. Uh, buy me a cup of coffee. It would be extremely appreciated. Um, also, of course, if you'd like to contact me, you can do so on Twitter at um, picturehousepod or by email picturehousepod at gmail.com and I'd love to hear from people who are revisiting these films maybe for the first time in um, in a long time and any memories that you have of them. I'd love to hear about films that I haven't talked about yet that mean a great deal to you, that change the way you saw the world and that live in the peapod um, inside you that contains all your most important um, associations. And if you're someone coming to these films for the very, very first time, I would really love to hear from you too. Once again, thank you so much for listening and um, hopefully you'll tune in again next time. Um, bye. Slán agus